1: This week on Meat and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for
2: delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years.
3: I was living in uh, Nepal and in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parate Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the
1: most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Cora Lee. Following her studies of both Chinese and Indian history at SOAS School of Oriental and African Studies um, University of London, Mukta Das's research interests have continued to exist at the intersection of South and East Asian cuisine and culture. Mukta has been following a group of South Asians who have adopted Cantonese cities and cultural and culinary identities. And we're here to talk about the complexities of heritage making as an outsider in a country already confused and split between rejecting and accepting values of the central government. Welcome to the show, Mukta. Thank you so much, Carl. So you are here for what?
4: Oh, wow. Well, I'm here to support my friend who is running the New York Marathon. Go, Alan. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he's probably already finished by now. But uh, yeah, so we're here as a group of friends and we're kind of geeing him on, making sure he has his
3: uh, runs his best race. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely the episode I've um, planned the most in advance. Ah. We, we started talking like a year or That's six months ago, right? That's quite right. a while ago. So yeah. this has felt like... Um, very... (laughs) Incubated. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, um, as I was explaining... Uh, Timuktu before the show, we've had a lot of SOAS. I'm a alum on this show, and I've always assumed it was just School of Arts and Science, but I found on Wikipedia right before this episode that it's actually School of African and Oriental Studies. Mm. So why is it called that, and why is it still called that?
4: Yes, I know. I mean, it it sounds like quite an archaic name, doesn't it? And so I think it's based on the um, history of the place. So it was uh, founded in the 1910s as a way of um, of of training colonial administrators uh, in the British government to to, to learn the language whether it's Chinese or Hindi and then basically to travel out there and uh, be a, a part of the British Empire and, and run things from there so um, it's there's, it's definitely rooted in colonial history hence the Oriental and African Studies kind of uh, moniker um, but uh, I think we're, we're kind of moving away from that we've got a huge decolonial agenda so I think we, we're more comfortable uh, calling ourselves SOAS so the acronym as a kind of name um kind of a nod to the history but also a kind of say you know a kind of flag in the ground to say we're moving forward <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. what do you think the the modernized name should be if you oh could rename gosh. the
4: school oh my gosh that's such a good question definitely drop the oriental <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> don't you think yeah. Right? Yeah. that's a random way of mm-hmm. calling a region um i'm not really sure i think i think regionally we're strong there we're still strong in china and india and southeast asia and east asia Um, And of course, we've got really good scholarship in Africa. So I don't have a problem with naming the regions, but maybe drop the Oriental. (laughs) Mm.
3: Yeah, so let's start by just talking about your research. um, What sparked this interest in this kind of convergence between South and East Asian cuisine and culture, which is not something that most people think about. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, it's always,
4: I mean, I'm sure you know, Carl, it's always a personal voyage, uh, a PhD like this. And so, you know, I'm a child of an immigrant family. My family just happened to come from South Asia to Europe. But what I decided to do was follow a lot of the new immigrants moving from South Asia across to the east to China in particular, because actually what they were articulating to me at the time and constantly really is the fact that they wanted to take a slice of the China dream. Um, this idea Wait, what is that, the
3: what is the China dream?
4: Exactly, right? So this this big amorphous thing that not even they could really fully articulate, but this idea that actually China's this massive emerging superpower, mm. that there was an opportunity to be had, money to be made, names to be had, you know, generated brands to be suddenly launched. There's this idea that the axis of cultural power had shifted from Europe and America straight into China and so they wanted to do that they wanted to build restaurant empires they wanted to to expand out of places like Hong Kong and Macau and Guangzhou and Beijing and and basically launch globally and that was a dream of theirs and so um, yeah so I wanted to kind of mark that really and research it make you know kind of look at it more deeply uh, and see what kind of um, you know what kind of everyday lives people led with this with this big 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 dream mm-hmm. to be had
3: yeah what, when was this migration happening was it happening kind of in tandem with like the american dream or is it kind of post-american dream
4: mm. it, you know it's a little bit of both Um, so right now there's a huge amount of migration and I guess it's about maybe there's an idea that America and Europe are kind of closed and to certain types of investment, certain types of um, migration. And so I guess at the moment it's a kind of post American um, migratory channel. But actually, um, South a- Asians have been finding themselves in Hong Kong and Macau uh, in the southern part of China for centuries. So there's an idea that actually what they're doing is layering on top of this historical route and finding their kind of place in, in a history of, of, of South Asian migration. You know, they're finding their kind of meaning in that. Um, and so, yes, it's new and it feels like actually, you know, we have to move away from Europe and America as, mm. as the land of opportunities. But also, we've always been heading east. We've always been looking east. And both things are true for people who are, you know, trying to make a life there.
3: Yeah, and is it reciprocal? Are there a lot of Chinese people moving to South Asia, or is it mostly one-way... There are... I, I didn't really research that
4: much, um, but um, from the stories that I heard and um, the friends that I made in China, um, a lot of people have been visiting India. Um, there's a huge uh, movement to, to understand and to practice yoga. And so that has resulted in a lot of yoga tourism from China to mm. India and other reasons too. Um, so, um, yeah, there is a great deal of um, interest right now. And of course, um, from the late 1800s throughout the uh, 1900s there's been a lot of um, Chinese migration into um, Chinatowns in India too so we have a number of bustling Chinatowns especially in Calcutta Mm -hmm. so it's been um, yeah again there's this idea of there's a historical layering um, which sort of underpins all the new movements that people are
3: are going on now. Mm-hmm. So back to what you were saying as, um, or about your PhD being kind of a personal voyage, in my internet stalking of you, I also saw that you did this kind of culinary series with Chef Andrew Wong. So you can, can you talk about that <laughs> and what that was all about? <laughs> so part of my PhD
4: was all about trying to find, I guess, um, you know, kind of, what we mean by Indian and what we mean by Chinese food and a lot of it's not I mean we can assume we know what we mean and but as you know you know the you can't find an origin story for for a Chinese dish you know it's Mm -hmm. shrouded in mystery but you know there are lots of historical research lots of historical sources that look at recipes and so I've I've looked at both sides Indian and Chinese uh, historical recipes and um I got in. I mean, Andrew and I were in touch via Twitter for, for several years because I've been. I was posting some random things on, um, you know, historical Chinese recipes from the Tang Dynasty or you know from a thousand years ago and things like this, and he picked up on that because he's um, he's really focused on on unearthing historical uh, techniques and ingredients and, and and skills to try and see if he can replicate those in his very modern London tiny um, family sort of kitchen and so we've been working together over the last few years kind of trying to find a practical use for some of this Largely poetry, actually. Chefs weren't really writing recipes down, but poets were, and and scholars were. And so we've been trying to kind of unpick some of this beautiful prose to look at what what these things actually meant in the kitchen. You know, what kind of tastes were produced by p- combining these things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, we've been kind of me- messing around. I think would probably be the best way to describe the research that we've been doing. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, so part of it's to do with kind of finding a historical basis for understanding what we even mean by these kinds of cuisines that I've been studying in my PhD and part of it's been a very playful look at how we can kind of uh, I guess remix
3: these recipes for a modern kitchen. Mm -hmm. Yeah so what have been some of the practical applications of like as you said um, kind of uncovering these moments of prose or poetry and then you know seeing them applied in the kitchen. So, we've got, um,
4: we've got about eight recipes that we've managed to kind of um, put together. And um, they're not uh, faithful recreations of, of fully formed recipes. In fact, very few, there are very few historical sources in China where there are full recipes available. So, it's about sort of looking at a particular um, dynastic period like the Tang Dynasty or the Song Dynasty and looking at all sorts of historical uh, sources you know agricultural records and um, what was traded in and around China and then looking at some of the prose and trying to put together things that kind of make sense uh, into a dish that tells the story of a, of a dynastic period if you like so it's more of a portrait of something um, and so uh, we've been looking at the Silk Road in particular and how that morphed and changed over the centuries and um, and so we've put together dishes that look at how um, viticulture was introduced into China through the Silk Road. So there are recipes with, um, you know, with kebabs and grapes and, and and things that kind of celebrate the Central Asian influence into China during that time. Mm. Um, so it's largely about sort of layering it and putting together a complicated picture that represents this kind of era, if you like, mm. rather than a faithful recipe, which, you know, are hard to come by
3: and often because they're written by poets. <laughs> they're not quite, you know, right. replicable. So in studying the history of both Chinese and Indian cuisines, you're kind of noticing that they're not really so distinct, but like you said, they're very layered and almost hybridised. And so um, what are there certain patterns that you've seen evolve throughout time? And, you know, where did that they, they diverge, if at all? And yeah, how, what are some characteristics that each express? Mm. Well, it's interesting because actually what you have is... Um,
4: A land route where uh, these influences were kind of exchanged. Um, So across the uh, the the deserts, uh, um, across the Silk Road, what you have are kind of um, you know certain types of meats and spices and breads and wheat um, and sort of milling and processing and things like this that are quite quite um, uniform across that region, including in northwest China, um, as well as in northern India. And so you have this kind of land route that kind of almost connects the two in a sort of spectrum of wheat and meat, <laughs> and then you have a kind of maritime route which uh, basically connects southern India to Southeast Asia and China and and slightly beyond. And there it's, it's far more complicated. Um, and this is where I usually focus on because um, I'm looking at largely maritime trading and maritime culinary tastes and whatnot. And it's not just um, you know Indian maritime. Um, a trading empires that would bring sort of, the, you know, would you know, you get this kind of confusion about where certain steamed goods come from, you know, or, or rice flour, or you know, the origins of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. They get mixed up in this history. But then you also have these um, colonial processes, you know, so if you've got Portuguese, the Dutch, the English, um, they come in and they start to bring in different foods and ideas um, which kind of connect Macau to, to Nagasaki, to um, to uh, Malacca, to Malaysia and... Um, so you've got these very interesting um, again I guess layered (laughs) that's probably my word for the day um, layered kind of culinary histories that that connect these ports these kind of very disparate cities and city states um, together that kind of confuse the, the, the history a little bit mm-hmm. again origin stories just don't make any sense when you're trying to plot plot you know where certain things come from and why mm-hmm. why people
3: use them and eat them and enjoy them mm-hmm. yeah so as you said the kind of migration of South Asians to East Asian spaces is kind of new ish and so if you are you know a modern day South Asian and you are not necessarily well versed in the history that you speak of um what is your experience when you're moving to these Cantonese spaces how do you kind of express your own culinary identity? Are you adopting Cantonese tastes? Hmm. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting question because
4: actually um, many a time I was schooled in this history, (laughs) Um, especially by Tamil restaurateurs, um, who were really keen to say actually, you know, we had a very prosperous empire from the 1300s and we've been trading with Cantonese speaking people or the southern Chinese people for centuries. So we have as much right to be here as anybody else. So you have that kind of attitude mm-hmm. and then you have this um, these uh, these restaurants that open up and they have this, you know, they, they have a kind of a standard uh, men, Indian menu, you know, of, of creamy curries and hot spicy tomato based sauces and, and breads and samosas and thing, you know, f- kind of familiar to people who are just used to eating in certain types of curry houses mm-hmm. in the West. Um, and so there'll be a... a they'll try and reproduce that there, you know, this kind of Euro-American tradition, this ordinary eating they try and reproduce there but actually that doesn't actually work because in Cantonese culture there's different you know there's different ways of, of, of ordering food um, the different kinds of ways of, of enjoying restaurant meals and banquets uh, there's not a, a history of uh, sort of touching food directly and there's all sorts of um, mm. sort of um, interesting ways that people have to na- South Asian restaurateurs have to navigate this space and so um, sometimes it's unapologetically okay this is what we're so serving Mm -hmm. you know we'll find a market and other times they've 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 um, introduced different kind of spicing mixtures that sound that you know they take a masala um, that you know very seed based very very hot and spicy and then they'll they'll turn it into something that's that tastes a lot like five spice Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know with a lot of sweet fennel and aniseed and Mm -hmm. and all sorts of things so they'll bring in so sweet flavors to introduce a kind of what they call a Cantonese masala. Mm Um, so you have attempts like that to kind of get into the space and to, um, you know, introduce some menus that feel a bit banquety. So they all come together, all the dishes come together at once. And, you know, it's a set menu that you can just order and you can just pick at uh, with rice, you know, rather than have, you know, a starter, a main course and a mm-hmm. dessert, as you would find probably here or you would order here right. or in London. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. that kind of uh, taste adjusting is totally feels not unlike um, like orange chicken here, right? Or... Chinese, had, Chinese food had to be kind of like dumbed down a little bit and slowly fed to the masses. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, yeah, I know about regional Chinese food, right? Yeah. Um, but so as those South Asian restaurateurs are making these little adjustments, who are those adjustments for? Mm. And um, what does it kind of mean for the future of the kind of commingling of these cultures? Mm. I found a lot of these... Um, so I studied this
4: kind of um, co-mingling, I guess, in three cities. In Guangzhou, which is in South China, uh, in mainland South China, and then Hong Kong and Macau, which are uh, special administrative territories. Um, and actually what I found with Hong Kong is that a lot of this adjusting, this sweetening, etc happened since uh, 1997 Hmm. so um, with a lot of the kind of flight of the British and and Europeans um, from China um, from from sorry from Hong Kong um, what you find is restaurateurs going well okay we're not leaving we're just going to have to adjust Um, and so there's this idea actually and this is probably across the board I'd say that actually people are settling in for the long haul they are not not um, going in and then getting out with as much money as they can. They're sojourning. They're bringing their families. They're, the, you know, these are multi-generational families, grandkids, etc. And so it feels like they are they are committing to the region and trying mm-hmm. to find better spaces, better culinary expressions of Indian food. Um, looking at game meats, um, maybe introducing and some some of these restaurateurs who are after Michelin stars <laughs> in Hong Kong and Macau. They're looking at you know maybe introducing. Vegan VIP menus where they can crack out of the no beef, no pork, um, very, very safe chicken, fish kind of lamb, uh, you know, triumvirate and move into game and other things um, so they can start to, you know maybe catch some awards um mm-hmm. that you know that kind of you know show them that they're rising in status as, as much as you know as india is as much as china is and so yeah there's a sense that actually what they're going to be doing is maybe breaking out of the usual curry house um, menu and 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 using it as a chance to explore meat i guess
3: mm-hmm. you
4: know right yeah uh,
3: yeah so what is it about hong kong or any of these Cantonese spaces that they're seeing provides this slice of the Chinese dream. I feel like even for people who are native to Hong Kong um, um, find the area and just cultural very fraught right now. It's, it's confusing. Are you Chinese? Are you Cantonese? You know. And so it's like there's this another layer here where it's like I'm South Asian entering this place that's neither Cantonese nor Chinese and how am I to express my culinary identity? Am I South Asian? Am I Cantonese? Mm-hmm. Am I Chinese? Hmm.
4: I mean, these are global cities. And so in in many ways, you you go into, and I'm not saying that from New York, you can go to Hong Kong and suddenly things are familiar. That's not the case. But yet there are, you know, a global city is a global city. You know, you have a metro, you have have lots of cuisines, you have a walkable path. You know, you, you get a sense of a city quite quickly because, you know, actually um you know these spaces are you know they're part of sort of the capitalist kind of system if you like so um you know the, the hong kong's just as important as anywhere else to launch a brand or to find yourself you know find mm. yourself as an entrepreneur um so there is that as well so beyond the ethno-linguistic identity of the city it's there to be exploited if mm. you like in terms of um cantonese-ness i guess that's always i guess been in flux um We've, uh, you know, obviously there's been um, a lot of more of this kind of exploration, political exploration, political activism around Hong Kong identity in, in more recent times. But actually, it's been something that has been always negotiated, even during the early days of the British rule over that island and, the, and the, eventually the new territories. And Indians have, fa- have tried to find their space in that for a very long time. And there used to be very clear hierarchies on racial lines, right? So you had uh, white Europeans on top, and then you had the Asian Indian administrators, and then you had the Chinese workers, or or Chinese industrialists and the Chinese workers. You know, there was a very strict, very clear hierarchy. And now, you know, there are still racial hierarchies. Obviously, it's not somehow Mm -hmm. (laughs) post-racial. But, um, you know, people are still trying to find their space in this, um, in this very, very near post-colonial time right you know it's within a generation that this has turned from a British territory into a you know a, a, if you like um, a Chinese uh, administered region so mm-hmm. it's um it's within living memory and and I think everything's really in flux is race a resource there I don't know in, in Taiwan you know they're very Keen on saying they're very multi, they're multicultural, mm-hmm. very different from mainland China because actually they they're able to embrace diversity in a way that mainland Chinese, um, you know, the state hasn't been able to. Does Hong Kong, does Macau do that too? Are they saying you know we've got you know large populations of, of non-Chinese mm-hmm. who are very happy here? You know, does that mean we're we're more of a global city than shanghai or beijing for example Mm -hmm. um you know that that's that's an interesting question that probably
3: needs a bit more research and yeah Mm
4: -hmm.
3: yeah i guess you don't yet have the answers then but um, my follow-up question is then how does immigrants experience in hong kong kind of differ from america Mm. it's
4: i'm looking into this a little bit more because um you know, this idea that um, sort of the Euro-American experience is somehow the ordinary experience, you know, that you have an apartment with with, this, with a certain type of kitchen and a certain kind of supermarket next door and, and a street that is this and, and with a metro state, you know, there is a kind of sense that actually you know global cities probably deliver that and actually the experience of an immigrant whether they're in new york or london or hong kong probably is quite similar Mm -hmm. but actually we know that's kind of not true Mm -hmm. you know ordinariness in hong kong is very different from ordinariness in 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 new york as anyone would probably attest if they travel back and forth um and so you know there's this idea of contending with space and with um with kind of with land rights and with um with a uh, uh, literally physical space, but also with um, this idea that actually, you know, a territory that is 96%, you know, ethnically Chinese, Cantonese, um, you know, it's, it's quite monocultural in a way that I think a lot of the European cities or Euro-American cities aren't. And so, you know, there is a sense that actually, um, you know, you, if you're going to be visible you're going to be visible. Um, and I think there's still a sense that actually, um, you know, uh, Indians are, and uh, I'm not talking particularly about Indians here, um, are, you know, trying to find a way of, I guess, being comfortable uh, with that visibility. And, and and I think recently, you know, with the economic resurgence of India and... Um, you know the cultural power of Bollywood and you know the film industry the music industry you know they're finding ways of kind of expressing themselves in these 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 huge you know premium world city spaces you know taking up the you know this casino hotel with award ceremonies and doing this and doing that so you know they're, they are consumers of Hong Kong as a space too mm-hmm. and I think that's probably what what you know um, yeah, something that's come out quite recently as a result of India being on the resurgence too. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So in your research, you are kind of looking at how South and East Asian people are kind of more concerned or anxious about um, heritage making. So can you talk about what that is and what that looks like and how people are finding it now?
4: Mm. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's really interesting because actually um, when I was researching in Hong Kong um, from about 2014. Um, There was a great deal of work being done to kind of put together a Hong Kong intangible cultural heritage list. So, um, I think the
3: like um, steamed Malaysian cake was like one of the items on the list. Yeah,
4: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And herbal tea, and milk tea making, and all sorts of uh, processed fish products and Mm -hmm. and agricultural foods. And so, I think there were about 70 different foods um, that were on the list of about 480. And this was a huge community effort. I mean, um, basically the office um, just sent out loads and loads of questionnaires, and they asked all sorts of district councils to just fill them and keep them coming, keep them coming. So they had 480 of these of these really interesting, but sometimes slightly samey festivals, <laughs> um, and and what they had in the end were these seven South Asian festivals, Diwali, etc., and Navratri, um, and so what they, you know, it was a kind of Weird um, thing, where actually, you know, they they wanted the community to kind of um, basically nominate things, and of course they were encu- they truly encouraged all the ethnic minority communities to to nominate things too. Again, this idea that racial diversity is a resource in Hong Kong, right? It's it's showing that there's a big difference between Hong Kong and Shanghai, for example. Um, uh, but actually, you know, there was a, there was there's also a lot of um, you know uh, con- <sighs> complicated feelings about including um, a South Asian festival as Hong Kong intangible cultural heritage, both from the South Asian side, Mm -hmm. but also from the Cantonese side too, you know? Like, you know, do do these things really, truly belong in Hong Kong's flora and, you know, in its DNA? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, actually, as a community consultation, it was thought of as a, a complete success because of these seven diverse things that ended up being out there um, but um, you know at the end of the day it's simply a list that can be rejigged and, and refined in later years and I think they sent up 20 to Chinese central government to say look this is our 20 this is our Hong Kong 20 and none of the South Asian stuff you know survived that that <laughs> culling to 20 so um so yeah so it's been a you know and heritage making okay it's obviously supposed to be about the past, but we know it's also about the future, right? You know, because actually, when you start to say something is heritage, you want to protect it, you want to pass it down the generations, you want it to be um, part of your, a fundamental part of your identity, and so, you know, it's no, uh, I guess it's no um, accident that these this, these heritage projects happened at this time, you know, with this idea that Hong Kong is. Really trying to find its identity and trying to make its um, make this identity as crystal clear as possible within this sort of busy regional um, regional area, and that a lot of the civil servants who are now very powerful in heritage making and all sorts of other things um, are you know a generation of, of of young civil servants who grew up in the eighties and the nineties um, who you know who are were looking forward to and know nothing but post-colonial Hong Kong mm. um, that cared nothing for the British uh, and, and want Hong Kong to be as, as kind of culturally um, uh, um, coherent as Singapore, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, there's a deep, uh, I think, a, a deep belief that that's possible, <laughs> um, that, you know, there's a coherence there and that these Basha uh, Hulls Uh, um, generation, this generation of uh, 80s and onwards, are there to kind of um, usher in, usher this Hong Kong identity to the 21st century and Mm. keep it going. You know, that's Mm -hmm. their legacy. They want to make sure that that happens.
3: Mm -hmm. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back to more heritage making after this break.
1: with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberto's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza powered radio. Learn more about Roberto's at robertospizza.com.
2: Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th, for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content. And bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala.
3: And we're back. And so uh, Mukta and I were talking about, um, if not the revolutionary kind of interest in heritage making the at least recently popularized um, <laughs> um, heritage making um, of southern and east Asian cultures mm-hmm. and so um, how has this kind of shifted in light of the recent protests? Can you kind of set the stage um, like what the protests are about and um, what Cantonese people want and um, what they're not getting and what this kind of means for heritage making in the future? Mm-hmm. I mean clearly
4: um, there's a sense that actually um, since 1997 we're when the handover happened between Britain and China, there's, this, um, there's a 50-year period where um, Hong Kong is effectively ruled by its own mini-constitution, so it's fairly independent from China. And um, there's, there is a very strong sense that that 50-year period is to be completely protected, and there should be no encroachment on anyone any side um, over Hong Kong, if you like, territorial independence or semi-independence, semi-autonomy. And so, Hong Kong people, I think, feel very strongly about this 50 years, Um, and um, they—they, I think, they—they, you know, in some ways, a couple of, you know, there are now generations that are defined by this 50-year mini constitution. This idea that Hong Kong has freedom of expression, freedom of uh, religious, uh, full religious. Practice, um, other things, you know, um, Facebook, for example, you know, th- this access to um, a sort of a global uh, media uh, environment, you know, this is something that is very Hong Kong. It's very much part of Hong Kong identity. And this idea that actually maybe um, this fifty, these fifty years have somehow been encroached upon, or uh, you know, kind of broken down a little bit, or, or you know, oh, it's being uh, manipulated, or uh, I don't know. It's, uh, if you like uh, diluted in some way uh, that goes to a heart, the heart of a very uh, you know very very concrete fear um, and so these pro these protests and the umbrella movement from 2013 um, 14 in Macau too um, are very much a reflection of this idea of actually these 50 years are sacrosanct um, up until 2 2047 and 2049 this is how it should be Um, And so these are, you know, these protests will likely continue if Hong Kong people, if people in Hong Kong feel actually that these 50 years are being stripped away, that the territory is somehow being, um, you know, kind of um, brought into China much quicker than the the promises that were made. So that's really the scene. Um, And, uh, you know, it's very difficult because actually at the end of the day, there's a lot of wealthy people in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is a very wealthy city because of its interconnection with with China yeah. and Chinese production and manufacturing. So, you know, it's a very symbiotic relationship at the end of the day, which probably makes it all the more <laughs> difficult, you know? It's like family members, you know, fighting, for example. You know, it, it is, it is it's a kind of neighbourly um, um, uh, conflict, if you like. So... Um, You know, so Hong Kong really does depend on China for its economic survival, uh, but these 50 years are sacrosanct. So um, heritage then in in situations like this becomes very politicised, you know? So um, the fact that Hong Kong can make a list for itself is quite unique. Why isn't it part of Guangdong um, uh, region, right? So the Cantonese-speaking region of mainland China, why isn't Macau and Hong Kong part of that? Why does it have its own list? So even the fact that it does have its list, and the fact that it has complete, um, you know, uh, decision-making power over how it produces that list and what is on it, is you know kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, the authorities have used the full power that they have to make sure that they do express their individuality from mainland China as fully as possible, while also connecting with the fact that you know over Guangdong there is a Cantonese opera culture, there is a herbal tea culture you know where you can you know um, medicate through Mm. kind of um, hot brews um you know there's a kind of shared idea of of, of medical kind of looking after yourself medically through these kinds of things so they're acknowledging that but then there's this whole other thing about you know actually but then we're also you know heavily um seaward looking you know we have our special oyster sauces and our our Mm. fish processed foods and things like this Um, and of course we have hong kong style dim sum hong kong style milk tea Mm -hmm. hong kong style etc you know this kind of um uh yeah this prefix hong kong style Mm -hmm. you know it's it's really quite powerful Mm -hmm. um and so as as a piece of heritage you know as a kind of bona fide um, piece of heritage it's quite a powerful statement to say actually we are very unique in this region Mm -hmm. um and we should be treated so
3: yeah, you totally touched on all the Hong Kong style uh, foods that I wanted to mention. Um, but so how is in a very like we're talking very kind of big picture, but um, in like a day to day basis, how is food kind of wielded as like a social tool to accept or reject, um, you know, Chinese government influence or not? Mm-hmm. It's um,
4: it's 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 interesting. Um. Uh, in some ways, I think it's kind of like the, the, the kind of competition between restaurants, you know, these, how many Michelin stars can Hong Kong get versus Shanghai? Or, you know, what kind of tourists can come to Hong Kong and what kind of money can they spend in Hong Kong compared to Shanghai? Sometimes it's all about, you know, this kind of thing on an everyday basis, um, just to show that actually even though Shanghai is very much... You know, on Hong Kong's tail Hong Kong is still a kind of Chinese and Cantonese cultural powerhouse, you know, they've got the best film industry, they have the best blah 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 Um, so it's about kind of keeping ahead of the Joneses a little bit as well on an everyday basis uh, knowing that China is an an emerging super and cultural power Um, but also I guess it's about acknowledging that there are things um, in Hong Kong that are just better um, uh, better protected in a sense. You know, uh, certain types of Buddhist practices, certain types of temple practices, certain types of um, festivals and festival foods have had a long and continuous history in Hong Kong compared to, say, in mainline China where, you know, the Cultural Revolution and other kind of um, political um, Um, uh, forces have kind of, uh, if you like, foreshortened or interrupted that history in in China, in as much as sometimes these new generation of people who are expressing Buddhist um, thoughts and reviving Buddhism or Taoism um, are having to reinvent it in China. Whereas in Hong Kong, there's very much a very, very long tradition of Taoism, for example. So um, there's a sense that actually they don't have to do much (laughs) to be different and more powerful and whatever and 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 more kind of expressive of a certain type of chineseness Mm -hmm. because they simply are and they exist and they continue to exist in the same vein um so in some ways yes there's a bit of competition as restaurants do and hotels do and hospitality sectors do um kind of fight to maintain their elite status and then there's this idea that actually it's okay. We're, we're, we're good. We're, we're good. <laughs> we, are, we are who we are, and we've always been this way, and we've never had to apologise or hide that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of power, silent power in that too. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing I'm getting anyway.
3: From... Yeah. So, so to close, um, if you could kind of speak from three different point of views um, as someone who's South Asian, as someone who is Cantonese, and as someone who is Chinese, and um, what does it mean to be Chinese today? Oh, wow. <laughs> um
4: Yeah, it's interesting because as a South Asian, um, I've come across a lot of other South Asians in Hong Kong who have taken, you know, Chinese passports, basically, Mm. who have decided, actually, you know, I'm second generation or third generation born here um, and I want to live here forever, so this is my identity. So they are largely, you know, Chinese by nationality and um, it's all they've known and all, um, you know, and they are very much um, committed to Hong Kong, um, beyond the 50 years, clearly, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, they're thinking very long-term. And so, um, for them, China is, um, is a future, is an idea of the future that they are committed to. Mm. As, um, it's so difficult to talk in generalisations, but I, I, I guess, you know, there are so many different kinds of Cantonese communities in Hong Kong, right? Um, And there are people who have moved since 1997 from mainland China into Hong Kong and are making a a good life for themselves there and um, look forward to a time after 2047 when things are, you know, pretty much as they expect. And actually some, some people express the fact that they don't see much difference anymore between Hong Kong and China and that's a sense of pride for them. Actually, when they go back and forth, they're seeing that Shenzhen and, and Guangzhou are just as, as, as um, developed as Hong Kong, you know, in these sort of economic terms. Um so you know there are newly arrived Cantonese um relatively who, who find Hong Kong just as much of a home um you know and Chinese then is a bigger is a bigger category, right? Mm-hmm. So you can be in Hong Kong, you can be in Singapore, you can be in mainland China, and you can still be Chinese, you know, that's that's their expression of it. Um as for I don't know, as for so when I researched in Guangzhou and talk to um, mainland Chinese who do visit Hong Kong quite often or Singapore or, you know, they're able to even, you know, get to go to Taipei and things like this, you know, there's a sense actually that um, there's a heartland issue. And um, for them, the tables are very much turned. Actually, despite China's um, political upheavals and this kind of break in traditional Chinese culture if you like um, China remains the heartland for communities in Singapore in Taipei, in Hong Kong in Macau, you know, China is the heartland of that, you know, that's where a lot of their kind of Chinese economic power is derived, cultural power is derived, so it's um, it's a China that is uh, I don't know it's kind of, yeah, beyond beyond territory, it's a kind of greater China feeling, you know because mm-hmm. I, I, I've, I've never grown up In a superpower, perhaps if you have uh, in 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 the states, you know you you have been and are a superpower. Mm. So you kind of maybe you get an idea of what that feels like. I don't because Britain's never. I mean, you know, since the Second World War, we've kind of waned in importance. So I've never really felt like I've been part of a superpower, but. Mm like when i when i ask people who are you know part of a emerging superpower you know they they express this in all sorts of confident ways you know it's um it's their it's their world right um you know they're ready for it um whether the world's ready for it i don't know but you know, I, I have to stand back and admire that. I haven't ever felt that. I've always felt a bit apologetic, being British in some <laughs> ways. Um, baby's an American, I don't know, maybe that's different for you. But, um, yeah, uh, to, to be on the cusp of super, superpowdom is, I think, they're, they're looking forward to the future in such bright bright terms bright Mm -hmm. ways anyway yeah Yeah,
3: I feel like that's a perfect way to end our conversation I've never thought of myself as part of a superpower (laughs) and I now think you've blown all the (laughs) listeners' minds we're like am I part of a superpower (laughs) so yeah thank you so much for joining me today thank you Carl Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community?